Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Earlier this month, the Office for National Statistics published revised GDP figures and upended the post-pandemic economic narrative. It turns out that Britain's economy recovered much more quickly than previously thought. I want to know how the ONS found a load of economic output down the back of the sofa. And in today's dumb question of the week, what could we measure instead of GDP? Okay, let's get into it. So the ONS just caused a storm in the UK with a massive revision to UK GDP numbers. Now, before we get into exactly what happened, I just want to say, is this normal? Well, revisions are completely normal. It's just the scale of this one, which is a little bit of a shock. Well, quite a big shock. Yeah, it made a lot of headlines. But also because I think many people had talked about this and shown how it was really bad compared to the rest of G7, for example, the big economies globally. So the UK was a laggard and the whole narrative had been built up around it. And suddenly the entire narrative was just nonsense. Really, though? Like, we got really into that narrative that the UK was struggling. Is that just not the case now? It's just been revised away. Well, it's still struggling, I think. It's kind of the middle of the pack rather than at the bottom of the pack. So that's not brilliant news. But it is still struggling, I think, in terms of GDP growth. It was really about that massive fall in GDP and the swing back. Now, any kind of little errors that creep into the way GDP is measured are going to be hugely exaggerating what happens over that period of time. So is it the case that COVID was so disruptive that just trying to be a statistician through that was an almost impossible job? Well, sometimes data just wasn't available because the people who were there to measure the stuff were just not there. They had COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Or they had COVID. Yeah, I mean, it was just such a big disruption. When this kind of thing happens, when you have these huge shocks where things can't be measured, well, what can a statistician do? They rely completely on those data to measure something concrete like GDP. And I saw that the ONS also said, yes, it's a massive revision in absolute terms, but if you compare it to the scale of swing we saw in GDP, the revision doesn't look so big, right? Yeah, and you can see that very clearly on a graph, which on a podcast is clearly a problem. But there isn't a huge difference. It is very small, the revision, you know, compared to that downswing and upswing, as they say. So the upshot is that UK GDP is now estimated to be 0.6% above pre-pandemic levels. That was at the end of 2021. Whereas previously, it looked like we were still 1.2% below pre-COVID levels. So that's a big change in the narrative, as you said. Yeah, I mean, a 1.8 percentage point change is, it seems huge. But then you compare that with the size of the downswing, which was about a 10% fall in GDP, and suddenly it doesn't seem so extreme. But the key thing is whether we've got over the shock of the pandemic and whether we're kind of growing at a normal rate of growth now. I mean, the monthly GDP numbers that we're seeing come in seem to be one step forward, one step back, don't they? One quarter it's up 0.5, the next quarter it's down 0.5, and then up again and then down again. It looks like stagnation to me. Yeah, that's the problem. And I think that's why we're not out of the woods, I don't think. You know, there are two ways to look at GDP. You can look at the level. That's the total amount of goods and services produced. And then you can look at the changes. And of course, it's the changes that we usually look at in real terms. And because inflation is so high, we're battling with higher costs. And it's a case of whether there's more economic activity to counteract those very high costs. So the fact that there's any growth at all in real terms at the moment is actually quite good, I suppose. But 
you have to kind of compare that with other countries as well. And there we're not looking so great. But as you said, we're no longer the exception among developed markets. So our economic recovery from the pandemic is now roughly in line with France's, as you said, in the middle of the G7 pack, better than Germany's, but still lagging the US and Canada. Yeah, and I guess what really matters is where we go after the shock has really subsided. And I think one of the problems also is that you have to disentangle what happened with Brexit for the UK, which happened just before the pandemic shock. So what we'll probably start to see is a difference, which is Brexit related, as we come out of that shock period. I mean, that hints at the fact that this revision was super political in a way. And I'm not saying the ONS did anything political, but how it was interpreted in the media and by the commentators was political. And actually, the ONS got a lot of heat for it, saying, well, what are you doing if you're making us look so bad? But actually, we were fine all along. But then there was a pushback, wasn't there, from the people who are generally sceptical about the UK and Brexit by saying, well, wait, you know, all the other countries haven't revised their GDP figures yet. Maybe we'll be pushed to the back of the pack again. Well, I noticed one of the things which the ONS did, the Office for National Statistics in the UK, is they've adjusted their methodology so that the more frequent measures of GDP, which they've now started publishing, the monthly and quarterly figures, are going to be consistent with the kind of longer term figures. And I think they were one of the first statistical agencies to try and do that reckoning, that reconciliation process. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's interesting that it wasn't just the COVID era that's been revised. They've actually gone all the way back, I think, to 1997, although the revisions generally are a lot smaller than we saw for the COVID stuff. Interestingly, they revised the financial crisis figures. So that's looking back 15 years, and that's changed. So what they said is the economic downturn was actually a little bit worse than they previously thought, with a 6.4% fall in GDP versus the previous one of 6.3%. And it actually took an extra quarter to recover from the financial crisis than we previously knew. And I think one of the things which people don't really appreciate is how good the ONS is and how dedicated those people are and how difficult their job is. You told me before to hug a statistician. You standing by that? <laughs> yeah. I still think we should have a hug a statistician day. I don't think they'd like that. Have you met statisticians? <laughs> they'd be super awkward just standing there. <laughs> That's a very broad statement about statisticians. I don't think that's absolutely true. But I think what people don't recognise is that, you know, in other countries, you can't rely on statistical data because there is very clear political pressure, which works. You know, they, they actually just... <laughs> yeah, the thing is, there's political pressure here from people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, but the ONS resists it, as far as I can tell. Yeah, and they can resist it, which is great. It shows the institutions here are strong. So what actually changed then? in the detail of this GDP report? Well, I guess if you dig into the Blue Book report that comes out from the ONS, one of the things they talk about is the supply and use tables. And if you've never looked at it, it is strangely intriguing. You can get really detailed spreadsheets on what's been going on in the UK. And it's broken down by regional level, by industry, and you can see exactly what economic activity is going on. And of course, GDP is just a measure of economic activity aggregated up to the national level. So if you don't have accurate low-level data, you're not going to have accurate high-level data. So I know one of the things they highlighted were inventories, as in how much stock were companies holding. And that seems to have had a big revision. Yeah, so let's just read from the Blue Book. So what do they actually say? Well, they say that measurement of inventories is challenging over this time period. The changes in the inventories component is now estimated to have increased by 2.5 billion in 2020 
Previously, this was an £11.4 billion fall. Right, that's massive, isn't it? So it's gone from a huge fall to a sizable increase. And what does that say? That companies weren't running down their stock as much as they thought. So I know there were the supply chain issues, weren't there, in the pandemic. But this seems to indicate the companies were actually stockpiling a little bit more. But in the intro, you were talking about finding something down the back of the sofa. Well, it was inventories. That's what they found down the back of the sofa. And I don't know how that came about. I couldn't work it out from the report. If you were conspiratorially minded, this was what you would focus on, right? You'd say, well, where's all this stock come from? Well, they do say they've incorporated richer data across a number of GDP components. So perhaps that's how they found it. The other thing I saw highlighted was that wholesale companies and the health sector produced much more in 2021 than previously thought. So that's about the bounce back after the very large fall. And that'll compensate, obviously, for the fall in output. Because the other thing was that there was a big anomaly in the data before, which was around healthcare, because obviously hospitals and healthcare industry was completely turned upside down in the pandemic, right, where we focused on vaccines and treating COVID. And there were far fewer GP appointments and far fewer surgeries going on, for example. So how does the ONS measure that massive change in output? And also the fact that the government was spending so much more money on healthcare during the pandemic, but previously the ONS had not recorded a rise in output, which was strange. And they've sort of corrected that and said, oh, we missed a lot of stuff that was going on in hospitals. Because a big component of GDP is government expenditure. So if you miss out chunks of that, then it's going to make a huge difference. But it kind of gets onto the point of how do you measure GDP, right? Now, typically, there are two approaches to measuring GDP, which often don't agree, but they try and make them agree. One is the expenditure approach, and that's where you add up spending on goods and services by consumers, by companies, by governments, and then you add exports and subtract imports. So that's the expenditure approach. And then you also look at the income approach, where you add up all of the wages, rent, interest and profits, also sales tax imposed by the government depreciation, income generated abroad by citizens, and then you subtract income generated by foreign citizens within your country. Yeah, so one is what's being spent and one is what's being earned, kind of. And they should agree, right? They should balance. Yeah, they should. But they come from different surveys, so they never will. And this is where the idea of reconciliation comes from. And I think one reason why GDP gets revised over and over again is that they keep trying to make these things tally. And in fact, in the UK, the new methodology, there's three different approaches which they reconcile. There's production, income and expenditure, and they all have to be balanced together. And the ONS says that they use comprehensive information to reconcile how the economy performs across 112 industries and products. I dread to think how many statisticians are involved in this. So I think the actual number of statisticians isn't that big. It's the data collection, which I think is a real issue. But that's what you'll find in the blue book if you actually download it, which you can, which I think is pretty cool. But the thing to remember is this is massively backward looking data, isn't it? The detailed reconciliation of all these different components is only carried out around 18 to 24 months after the reference period. So, for example, the estimates for 2020 were only published now, this month in September 2022. Before that, you just get these kind of premature snapshots, which everyone overreacts to, don't you? <laughs> because you need a number and you go, that's the number. Well, normally you get three updates as you go along. So first of all, you get a preliminary number, then you get a secondary estimate, and then you get the final estimate. 
And of course, that's not really final. They should call it final for now. It's like when you have a Word doc on your computer and eventually it's like final, final, real final, <laughs> like brackets after the name. <laughs> We're really sure now. But typically the revisions are not huge, are they? It's just this time is pretty exceptional. Yeah, and they, this is the one that's got the headlines because, like you say, it was political. It's almost a matter of national pride. You compare how well you coped with the pandemic relative to other countries and particularly parties which are about to lose power politically because of what happened, because they were in charge during the pandemic and it's caused a lot of pushback, they're probably trying to justify how well they did. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see lots of other revisions elsewhere. Yeah, it's just such a crazy period, the pandemic, that they were making it up as they go along, right? They're building the car as they drive it. But the thing to remember about the preliminary numbers that come out each quarter is that that is really based on the output approach to GDP. It's only later that the income and the expenditure reports come in and they're all balanced together. I guess ultimately it's due to people having to report their taxes and also companies reporting what they've been doing, but also their levels of inventory. It takes a while to report that stuff and for it to get aggregated at the national level. And then there's a whole nother process where they take nominal GDP and try and turn it into a real GDP figure. So how much is the economy actually expanding or shrinking once you account for inflation? And that's not easy to do because they don't just use CPI, for example. Now, what they use for this is something called the implied GDP deflator. The ONS describes this as the broadest measure of inflation in the domestic economy. And that reflects changes in the price of all goods and services that comprise GDP. Now, that's much broader than CPI inflation because consumer price inflation is based on a basket of consumption for the average Brit in the UK. Yeah, that's just what we pay for stuff. Whereas the GDP deflator is the price level of everything. So what the government's paying, what imports and exports are like. Also what companies are paying. And again, can I say that the ONS does a great job of trying to explain these really difficult concepts so that even an idiot who's got a background in physics can understand it. Someone with a background in music can't really understand it, but they still do a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And there's one other thing to remember, which is that this is based on the price of goods and services that are produced domestically, like the clues in the title, right? Gross domestic product. And so there's this whole balancing act where they look at imports and exports. And a higher price for exports leads to a higher value for GDP because obviously exports are produced in the UK, whereas higher import prices reduce the value of GDP because they're not produced in the UK. And the ONS flags up that when there's large movements in oil prices, because remember the UK is a big energy importer, or if there's big movements in commodity prices or in exchange rates, then that has a massive impact on the level of real GDP. And another outcome of the pandemic was that we had a huge shock in those variables. For example, the oil price went briefly negative if you look at the futures price, and then it shot back up. And then we also saw sterling weaken hugely, which as an investor was great news because if you had a global index, it meant that our stocks didn't crash, whereas US investors investing in dollars would have seen a much bigger crash. In a way, it protected investors having that sterling shock that sterling fall. But if you're the ONS and you're looking at a wildly swinging oil price from, you know, literally negative in the futures market to $100 a barrel and the exchange rate going from near parity with the dollar to up to 1.3, 
it's no wonder there's these huge revisions, not just to nominal GDP, but to real GDP. And then there's the question of the timing of the shocks, how it happens relative to the output that happened at the time. So like you say, many moving parts and really difficult for the ONS to untangle this. I kind of think that the GDP numbers from the pandemic era and the recovery will be contested and debated and maybe revised for years to come. But what is interesting, I think, is how things are changing in terms of measuring GDP and also the approach to measuring GDP in the first place. It is, in a sense, a kind of doomsday book of our age where you're trying to work out what people are doing so you know how much you can tax. That's part of the reason for GDP. So that's why they're really interested to measure it accurately. But what we're seeing now is the ability to collect real-time information over a very large geographic area and also to integrate that data into huge databases, which previously we just couldn't do. It was unthinkable 100 years ago. So maybe in the future what we'll see is real-time GDP measures, or at least something close to real-time. I don't know. It's so many moving parts, so many prices to track, so many surveys to aggregate. Surely we can't really get to an accurate real-time GDP level. I think we're getting closer to it, and I think the ability to do that is almost there. It's just a matter of whether the government's willing to spend the money to aggregate the information. I know that the Atlanta Fed in the US has GDP now. Have you seen this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what they do there is slightly different. What they say is they look at every data release and then they measure the impact on what GDP is likely to be using a statistical model. It's interesting because you can see some measures have a huge impact, whereas others are kind of irrelevant. But what we're talking about here is slightly different because it's collecting much more granular data and then aggregating that up into a gross activity measure, whatever you want to call it, for the entire country. I guess then it would be more useful for investors because the criticism of GDP from an investor point of view is that it's massively backward looking and that stock markets, for example, aren't really directly affected by GDP. Like Stocks are very forward looking, whereas GDP is backward looking. So, for example, if you invest in tech companies, you'd be very interested to know what the ad spend is on a particular platform, for example, YouTube or on Google Search, both of which depend heavily on those for their revenues. And it's not just if you're an investor in tech companies. So I know that in a recession, ad budgets are the first thing to get cut. So if you knew that all the hotels are cutting back on their ad spend on Google, you could be pretty sure that they're not going to be reporting good earnings in the next few quarters. But just to go back to the revisions to GDP, it's not just a UK phenomenon. So in the US, there's been a big debate among economists. It hasn't really made it into the mainstream media. But there's this question of GDP on one hand and GDI, which is gross domestic income on the other. It's kind of like we said before, the output and the income elements. And they should agree. Theoretically, they should agree. But they've diverged massively since the pandemic. GDP's been growing and GDI's been shrinking. And this is one reason why it's difficult to make cross-country comparisons of GDP, because they do measure different things. There are subtle differences. Although broadly, the methodology is similar, when you dig down to the detailed level, the comparisons aren't equivalent. Yeah, I've got a good quote from the head of GDP at the ONS in the UK about some of the differences, especially as they got exaggerated during the pandemic. So he said, in many countries... They measure the contribution of health and education to GDP by looking at the inputs, the wages or hours worked by teachers and nurses, and other costs such as medical equipment. 
However, in the UK, we measure the contribution of these services by directly counting these activities. For example, how many GP consultations and operations have taken place, or how many children have been taught. And we know that in the pandemic, the number of children being taught, for example, shrunk, didn't it? And the number of GP consultations shrunk. So it looked like there was a massive contraction in UK healthcare output, which other countries didn't report that because they were looking at it in a different way and measuring it in a different way. So the fact that the UK looked to be this laggard in the global economy was weirdly a part of a statistical anomaly. So in a sense, if you're really careful about measuring GDP and your method of doing it is going to show a fall in GDP, which is bigger, then maybe you don't want to do that. Well, there's definitely debate about which is the right way to do it. So people had written to the government and the Office for National Statistics about this. And then Ed Humpherson, who's the Director General for Regulation, replied by saying, this is less because the UK's approach is flawed conceptually or practically, and more because not all countries measure public services output in the conceptually sound way that the UK does. <laughs> I just love that. It's like, everyone else is wrong. We're doing it right. And he says, people should be cautious about comparing changes in GDP in the UK with other countries. I mean, I noticed when I read the blue book, it repeatedly said the UK is adopting best practice around its stats, which can't be claimed for every other country. So do you think there are people at the ONS who are saying, for goodness sake, don't do this, don't do this. Yeah, do it in the old way. It looks much better. <laughs> I mean, some of this just raises the question of, is GDP even a good idea as a number? It's something that's so complex to calculate, and it's massively affected by what assumptions you make and how you reconcile the different elements, that putting this one simple number on something like the economy of a country just has the danger of a kind of false precision, which isn't really there. I think having it is better than not having it still. I think that's still the case. And that's because if you do have a country which is a laggard, then you want to know about it. And you want to know about it without being filtered through a political narrative. So you can really see whether things are good or bad. But is it the only measure to look at and to compare the well-being of a country? By no means. You know, you compare on multiple measures. And as an investor, I think it's fairly useless unless it's at an extreme level. I mean, and retroactively, you can look at it and explain what's going on with stock markets, for example. But it's not a forward-looking measure, it's backward-looking. And this is why I always joke that economics is the only so-called science which can't forecast the past. It just always has these revisions because it's really hard to measure. That's the thing with GDP. Sometimes I wonder if GDP falls in an economy and no one's actually listening, does it make a sound? And there are all sorts of studies that show that if you actually look at the relationship between GDP and stock markets, there's a negative correlation in some cases because it's backward looking. Usually stock markets are forward looking, so they come out of the trough well before there's any sign of economic recovery. You look back at 2008 and you can see that very clearly. Stock markets bottomed out in March of 2009, well before there was an economic recovery. And I think sometimes even if you adjust those periods to like align stocks and GDP, there's some thought that stocks maybe do really well when there's like monopoly pricing power, when they're capturing a greater share of the economy versus workers. But that is not necessarily what means GDP is going to do really well. GDP would like more money in workers' pockets often. So, you know, maybe it is literally the case that those two can be in opposition. 
stocks do well when GDP doesn't quite do so well. And there is some evidence for that. There was a paper by MSCI which seemed to show this negative relationship between the two. And they give three reasons for it. One's kind of obvious, which is that GDP is a national measure. Companies often export abroad. So what really matters is a kind of trade-weighted GDP for all of your trading partners as well. Secondly, you get dilution of stocks. So if there's very strong GDP growth, yeah, there's going to be more profit, but it may be shared amongst more companies and more shares. Yeah, when the economy is doing well, there'll be more IPOs and things like that and a dilution of shareholders. Is that what that means? Yeah, exactly. And so you're not going to get a bigger slice of the pie if you've just got one company. And then the third thing is that markets are forward looking, so they kind of factor this stuff in really quickly. And that kind of discounts any future growth. But really, it's not a useful measure, I don't think. So if GDP is almost irrelevant to stock market investors, what should they be looking at instead on a macro level? Well, you can look at earnings. I think that's much more important, much more relevant for investors. Look at how much profit a a country is generating. You can do that at the index level. Look at the purchasing managers indices, which are much more timely. Those are published every month rather than every quarter. And they're directly related to companies rather than the entire economy, which is less interesting for investors. And they don't get revised, do they? Not at all, by design. Because if you imagine that you're a purchasing manager at one of these companies who fills in the forms, you're not going to change your mind after being asked by S&P Global Indices. You're not going to revise it six months later. Yeah, because in a way, it's taking the temperature of sentiment at any one time, isn't it? It's ringing up the purchasing manager and saying, are you selling more stuff? Or have you got more orders coming through the door? Are you going to hire more people? Yeah. Yeah, and that's not going to change. It is what it is at that time. So having a non-revised measure is probably a good thing for that measure. You do get flash PMIs, don't you, versus the final PMIs? Yeah. When a large fraction of the data has been collected, they publish the flash PMI and then they have a final estimate when all the data is in. So it's kind of like a revision, but it's not a revision. And it's very quick. It's like a week apart or something. That's right. I mean, sometimes the issue with official stats, yeah, they're useful in a sense, but they don't even always agree with each other. Like there's various different official measures and you look at them and you can tell completely different stories. Yeah, it's like the Sufi story about the elephant. You have lots of people who are blindfolded and they feel an elephant. And one person feels the trunk, they say it's like a snake. Another one feels its leg, they say it's like a tree. Mm, That wasn't a trunk, Romin. (laughs) (laughs) Another one feels a tail. And it feels like, a, I don't know what the hell that feels like. I don't know. <laughs> You've never felt an elephant? No. But different people feeling different parts of the economy are going to say different things. And if there are different surveys, they'll probably tell very different stories. So I know that Chris Giles from the FT, he had a really interesting tweet around the employment data in the UK, because there's different ways of looking at it. There's the labour force survey, which comes from the ONS. And then there's the data from HMRC's pay-as-you-earn system, P-A-Y-E. So you can tell different stories. If you look at the labor force survey, employment is falling quite sharply now. There's less people employed. But the PAYE data shows that it's stable. And then unemployment, again, the annual labor force survey shows it's soaring, whereas the single month version shows that it's falling. And then finally, wages are either going up really fast, according to the wage survey, or have flatlined, according to the PAYE data. 
So clearly they're feeling different parts of the elephant. Yeah, there's <laughs> different parts of the elephant and it's really hard to know what's going on. Now, economic data is coming into our inboxes all the time and it's really hard to make sense of it and to see what matters and what doesn't. And if you do want to learn more about that, then you can do that as part of our community. To find out more about that, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is what could we measure instead of GDP? So we kind of talked a little bit about the indicators that might matter more to investors, but there's other ways to think of this too, isn't there? So I know a lot of people, especially when it comes to countries like China, question the official GDP numbers and try and look for alternatives to verify them. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. So things like the price of copper, because China's a big buyer of copper, maybe iron ore as well, because they have to build reinforcement into their concrete buildings and they have to get the steel to do that. So I think you can do it reasonably well with commodity prices, if you're looking at China's GDP growth, for example. So the idea is, if China is saying its economy is growing really fast, but the price of copper and iron ore are falling, then something doesn't add up there. Yeah, I mean, they can kind of hoard inventory for a short period of time, but if you're continually using it, then that's only going to work for a limited period of time. Ultimately, they're going to have to buy more, and that'll push up the price of copper. So I looked at an interesting piece from the St. Louis Fed in America, who proposed several different ways of kind of verifying Chinese GDP data. So the first one is energy consumption. If they're growing their economy, they're presumably going to be using more energy, kind of related to the commodity prices, as you say. But they also propose lots of other things like freight volume, passenger travel, construction indicators, you know, how many buildings are there in the skyline, electricity output, as well as things like money supply in the stock market. And then the final one, which I thought was interesting, was luminosity, like literally using satellite data to see the intensity of man-made night lights. I think that's really interesting as a measure because I know that people were talking about South Korea versus North Korea. Yeah. And if you look at the two at night, there's a massive difference between the two. You can literally see the border, can't you? It's just there's like illuminated South Korea and then just darkness where North Korea is. I guess for one of those countries, like North Korea, where I don't even know if they publish official GDP rights, <laughs> you definitely can't invest there. But luminosity is presumably one of the only ways to get any kind of gauge on economic development. But great for astronomy, as it turns out. Oh yeah, you're going to go there just to look at the sky. <laughs> <laughs> Risky. Best star party ever. Have you seen that in Stratford, they're talking about building this glowing orb? No. Where it's just like a massive advertisement, right? inside as a theatre or something. So I was just thinking, like, if the UK GDP numbers do look disappointing, just build these orbs <laughs> shining lights into the sky. At least the satellites will think we're doing well. With a laser, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's one idea about alternatives, is verifying potentially questionable GDP data around the world. But the other thing we mean by alternatives is that some people say that GDP itself the measure of the output, services and goods in the economy, is not a great way to measure if society is flourishing. So are there better things we could be looking at? So there is something called the Bhutan Gross National Happiness Index, which they use to determine how happy their society is. And it has four pillars. It has ecological sustainability at the core, but it's also got sustainable and equitable socio-economic development, a free and resilient culture, and good governance and equality before the law. So those are the kind of main components. However, according to Human Rights Watch, 
Over 100,000, or about a sixth of the population of Bhutan, who were from Nepal and who were Hindus, were expelled from the country because they wouldn't integrate with Bhutan's Buddhist culture. So clearly... (laughs) Whose happiness are we measuring? (laughs) That is the question, right? But I know there are quite a few different measures that are kind of looking at happiness and contentment maybe in the economy by official things so the united nations has their human development index which consists of three categories health education and standard of living so health for example is assessed by life expectancy and education is assessed by how many years children spend in school but that's not the only one it seems like every major international organization has their own version of some kind of happiness index. So the OECD has the Better Life Index, which looks at 11 topics like housing, jobs, education, environment, government, and things like work-life balance as well. So for example, there, one measure of the strength of the community is based on people's support networks. So they'll ask questions in a survey like, do you have someone to count on for help in times of need? But as an investor, do you really want people to be happy? For example, if you compare the number of holidays you get in the US versus Europe, Europe has lots more holidays. So you could say, well, they're less productive, but life is better. So I saw a nice tweet about this, which was called the Transatlantic Economic Discourse. The Americans are saying we have lower inflation, lower unemployment, higher growth than you. We win again. And the Europeans say, thanks for your email. I'm currently out of the office on annual summer vacation until 30th of September 2023. (laughs) (laughs) But I've thought about this point before, is that when we compare GDP from America, say, with Europe, and you're looking at GDP per capita, shouldn't you adjust for the number of hours worked per year? Because it would make Europe look a lot better, right? Is that we're generating relatively more GDP because we're doing it in less time. Well, you can look at productivity data. You can look at the output per hour, I guess. Yeah, that still doesn't look good, though, does it? Just to go back to the happiness indexes of whatever flavor you look at, the criticism of them is that they're easily manipulated and so subjective. Whereas GDP, yeah, it gets revised all the time, but it's at least based on hard data. Because if the government was just trying to maximize happiness in some sort of wishy-washy sense, you could make people happy in all sorts of totalitarian ways, or at least think you could. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen those videos of people laughing and smiling at the uh, pictures of the glorious leader in North Korea again. Citizens will rejoice. That's right. Like, as problematic as GDP is, it's probably the best we've got. For the time being, I think you're right. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.